here it is cast and blast conversations episode 29 and guys this will probably be the last conversation of the year i'm not going to say definitively it is but it will probably be the last conversation episode we release it released this year so we hope you guys enjoy it is a great great conversation with a limnologist mark hoyer from the university of florida a limnologist, and we'll get into this in the podcast, is basically a lake scientist. They study the ecology of a lake. So we've had a lot of questions this year about lake management, about spraying, about nutrient loads, everything else. Mark puts a great bow kind of on that whole conversation. And then he talks about Lake Watch, which is a project, project that University of Florida has been doing for a number of years that he's been a, a major part of. So hope you guys enjoy Mark Hoyer, Cast and Blast Conversations, coming at you right now. So joined today by Mark Hoyer. Mark, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for uh, joining us. I appreciate you taking time to do this. First question is always the same to everybody, and that is, who is, well, it's not who is Mark Hoyer to everybody, but to you, it's who is Mark Hoyer? (laughs) Well, uh, first is, uh, I guess, putting it in in order of importance, uh, you know, I'm a saved person. I have Christ in my heart. Next is I got a lovely family, a wife of 40 years, Miss Laura Lynn, son Garrett, and his wife Alana. They live in New Zealand with my first granddaughter, Amelia Grace. So that's the most important thing. Uh, My time for myself when I'm not working. Uh, When I grew up, there was only three seasons. It was baseball, basketball, and football. (laughs) And now it's fishing, archery, muzzleload <laughs> and rifle season <laughs> so that's just about how i live my life now and my lovely wife tolerates all my stuff and in between seasons gives me a list and i always get it done so i can go to the so to the, the next season, season? <laughs> <laughs> stuff around the house season uh you what do you what do you, so your archery did you grow up in florida i did not i grew up uh upstate new york okay uh fell in love with the uh, lakes and limnology on the great lakes uh, from there, I went to Iowa, where I wanted to work with one of the best fisheries biologists or scientists ever, which was uh, Dr. Carlander. And so I got out to Iowa State, and that's where he was, and got my uh, bachelor's in fisheries and uh, wildlife biology at Iowa State. Got to work with him before he retired. It was a, a blessing. And then uh, got deeper into lake science down at the University of Missouri in uh, Columbia. Okay. And then from there, I came back here, and that's when I started learning about Florida. And it's a lot different hunting down here than it is up in the Midwest. Because one of the first things you do during archery season is to get your mosquito repellent. (laughs) And your shorts. (laughs) And your shorts. (laughs) Let let me ask, let me put you on the spot here and and ask you probably what will be the most controversial question. You went to Iowa State. Iowa State, yes. And then you went to University of Missouri, and now you work at University of Florida. Correct. Where's the football allegiance? It's got to be University of Florida. Okay. Man, I was worried about you if you went the wrong way on that. No, no. Tim Tebow bought him a, a lifetime fan of okay. me and, and my son. Okay, good. I was, I was. was. There's not much coming about. I would have had to do some serious editing if you went the other way on that. <laughs> Let's talk about, um, if you had to pick one kind of hunting, what would, what would it be? It'd be archery. Okay. You know, I uh, got into it deep. I make my own bows. Uh, arrows the whole bit when you finally manage to get a nice deer with your homemade bow it's a it's quite an experience so you do primitive primitive long long bow uh, on osage orange that i bring down from iowa okay and uh, that's just a passion of mine and, and of course followed quickly by turkey hunting 
I see that. And then when I was younger, I chased the biggest turkeys ever, those elk down in Colorado, but I just can't get up and down the mountains like I used to. It's funny, you're the second guest we've had mentioned that elk are basically just big turkeys. They're just big turkeys. You hunt them the same way. <laughs> so tell me this, how you are now, um, you're a, a limnologist. What is a limnologist? I've got two answers for that. Okay. Uh, the first one is a limnologist is my big title. And I only use that under special occasions. When you go to the doctor, you always have to fill out those forms and they got a thing that says, what's your profession? I write down limnologist because I know that the doctor who thinks he knows everything will never know what a limnologist is. <laughs> they always come out and ask me. And so then I get preferential treatment when I describe what a limnologist is. But a limnologist is a generalist. They study all things related to freshwater systems. Uh, down here, it even bleeds in. I've done a lot of work on estuaries. But we, if you're a geologist, you're studying simply the soils and the rocks and stuff. If you're a hydrologist, you're looking at water fluids. If you're an algologist, you're studying individual algal cells. Aquatic plant people, they know the biology of plants, the management, they know how to kill it. Uh, when you're a limnologist, you have to put all of that stuff together. You got to take the rain when it hits the watershed, it rolls down the hill and it brings nutrients into the system. And you have to understand how they get there and are processed within the lake, how they leave the lake, go downstream, and eventually end up in the oceans. We got to know how that impacts the biology of the plants, the algae, and eventually the structure of fish populations, aquatic bird populations. So a limnologist puts all of those things together. It's a kind of a dying breed. There's not too many uh, colleges anymore that really have a specific program in limnology. So I was fortunate to have that opportunity in uh, Missouri. Is it fair to say, and analogously, that you're looking at the whole board versus a single piece? Correct. Is that a fair way We're to say We're trying that? to put all the pieces together, and then we end up helping individuals develop management plans based on what I like to call the individual envelope of a lake, because a lake can only be what all those parameters for an individual lake is. You can't have a really, really clear lake if you're sitting in a very nutrient-rich soils. For instance, in uh, around Lakeland area, if you've ever looked and fished at those lakes, they're really, really green. Well, they like, mine, like pea soup. They mine phosphorus there. The geology will never allow those lakes to be clear. If you go to the Ocala National Forest, you can see 15 feet in some of the lakes because their geology is sitting on the top of sand hills. There's no nutrients in the sand. So just by where the location of the lake is tells you what it can be. You're never going to turn a Lakeland Lake into a 15-foot clear swimming lake. It's always going to be green and productive. So we have to know what the envelope of the lake is uh, in order to see whether or not we, as uh, human society, has changed it outside of what it's naturally occurring. or And that's called anthropogenic impacts or whether it's just natural because that's how it's always going to be. So that's one of my goals as a limnologist is find out what natural background variability is and determine whether or not what we've done has changed it. And if the change is unacceptable, what do we do to manage it to get it back to where it was to begin with? Okay. I'm going to 
we're going to come back and you may repeat some of that because I may ask that again because I think what you're describing is super important given our landscape today, conservation in Florida, water quality in Florida, the whole nine yards. But before I come back to it, I do have to ask two questions and I feel almost silly asking them now, but you got to answer these because <laughs> I make everybody answer them. And the first one is pineapple on a pizza. Do you have strong feelings about that? Uh, why would you waste a perfectly good pineapple and, <laughs> and put it on a, on a pizza? That's the right answer. And, and I don't understand why more people don't get that. Like it, it's hard, it's hard <laughs> to disqualify an expert in a field, but generally speaking, if they're wrong on that, I'm, I'm probably skipping this podcast and going to the next one. Um, the other one is what's your go-to snack when you're hunting or fishing? Uh, leftover pizza in a bag without pineapple <laughs> on it. <laughs> That's a hardcore move right there, my friend. Going with cold pizza in a, in a well, bag. Well, you know what? When you're fishing and you you only got about 30 seconds in between bites, you got to have something you can eat real quick. And, <laughs> and then you can set it down on the console. It doesn't get too bad. <laughs> so let's go back. Um, I, I, I need to ask this as well. How long have you been at University of Florida? Uh, this is my 39th year. Wow. Okay. I've, uh, I actually kind of, like you mentioned when we were chatting, uh, I've already retired once and, uh, finished my drop. I sat out and they haven't found somebody to fill my position for the Lake Watch program. And it means so much to me. I'm going to work until, uh, I'm really comfortable to leave. I have several more years of stuff I really want to accomplish in the program, different science things, different questions I want answered. So I'm as long as I'm healthy and enjoying it, and uh, I'll be here. So I want to talk, my, my plan for this is to kind of talk general limnology, lake life cycle. Uh, you've talked about anthropogenic eutrophication. I want to talk about some of that stuff. And then if you're listening to this at the end or towards the end, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on Lake Watch too, which okay. is a program that's near and dear to your heart and, yeah. and super important citizen science program that covers a whole lot of stuff is very interesting so if you want to only hear that you can skip ahead but i think i'd stick around for the whole conversation because this is going to be really good how we get there um so let's go back when you answered the limnologist question does it cover you said it covers basically everything in the watershed can you explain that to me one more time like does it cover animals like like turtles and otters and alligators and fish or does it and insects like how does it work a limnologist is not an expert on individual species, but we incorporate all the different species in management plans and how do they impact uh, the ecology of the lake system. For example, you mentioned turtles quick. If uh, you're trying to do revegetation, a lot of times people don't understand that turtles will go in there and they actually eat a lot of this stuff. So you can have uh, grazing on stuff that you're planting. So you need to consider how many of those are, maybe put excluding devices to keep them out, that type of stuff. But the, the watershed concept, every water basin, if you start walking far enough, goes uphill and you reach a peak and then it goes downhill and that's no longer part of the watershed for that lake. Everything that hits rainfall and everything that hits onto that little pinnacle runs one way or the other, and we try to figure out everything that's in the watershed to manage the individual lake. So if you're farming on one section and you have urban development and stormwater on another, if all that water runs into the lake, you have to understand where it's coming from, how much is in it, what the nutrient concentrations are, 
and whether or not we're putting more than used to get into the lake. And if it's managed poorly, then the concentrations in the lake, and we I'll back up a little bit, we focus on phosphorus and nitrogen, just like farmers. That's what we call the limiting nutrient. The limiting nutrient means that we can add everything we want to the lake, magnesium, calcium, and it never changes the productivity. But if we add something that's limited, we put more phosphorus in, which is usually the one, we get more algal growth. So you can look at it as a, uh, it limits the production of things within the lake. If we add more, we get more. And if we go past what was naturally in the lake, that's when we get cultural eutrophication. Eutrophication itself is the natural process because we have to understand that because lakes are at the bottom of the hill, for a millennia, things have been washing into the lake. That's just a natural process. Some of the systems have natural cleansing areas uh, due to stochastic, I mean occasional events like hurricanes or huge droughts that will dry up the bottom. And so you'll actually, wind will blow it away as it dries. Or if you have a hurricane, you can actually get the water moving so fast through a system that it pushes everything downstream. If you've ever read Aldo Leopold's, absolutely, they have the X molecule. It starts at the hill and it goes to the ocean. And that's the process. Everything wants to move downhill. And so it's to, we manage by a watershed uh, concept. So if we have bad farming practices, too much uh, fertilizer, we can pick that up in the lake based on what we know about natural variability. So then we can go talk to that area of the watershed, do contour plowing or decrease fertilizers or whatever we need to make sure the lake is functioning, functioning naturally and what natural background variance is. I never use the term healthy lake because lakes are what they are. Okay. And we can manage a lake. We can even change that if, as a society, we want to change that. Uh, there's a lot of systems, even if uh, game and fish years ago in the panhandle would actually fertilize lake systems to increase fish production. Aquaculture, uh, ponds uh, have been doing this since the Chinese did it 2,000 years ago. So we can intentionally go in there and make the lake what we want by fertilizing. Uh, most of the time, because of the geology, we can't take it lower than what it was unless we you know, put filtration systems in there or do different okay. things like that. And a lot of our urban lakes are nothing more than dredged out areas where they took fill uh, to raise levels to build houses. And now they call it their lake, but it's actually a, a retention pond. It's man-made. Man-made. Can you talk... I want to set a baseline a little bit with something we talked about a little bit before we start recording. So I'm going to tee this up and you just roll with it. Okay. But it's the idea of a lake life cycle. Cause I feel like this is something we miss a lot in the conversation yep. these days. Can you explain the lake life cycle to us that haven't been, I, and I'll be honest with you. I remember it from 10th grade earth science, but that's about what I remember of it. Yeah. I don't really know the nuance of it. Can you, can you kind of talk us through that? Carrying on. It's called Lake succession. And you start when the lake is formed, however it's formed. There's many different mechanisms. Uh, in Florida, many of the lakes were formed uh, with sinkholes. Uh, 
we had a big limestone deposits as the oceans rose and fell. All the different animal creatures created limestone deposits. They're easily dissolved. And so as the oceans receded, and this is a 10,000-year story, uh, they dissolved underneath the land because there was cracks in the limestone, and eventually it dissolved enough where they collapsed. And then the water on top would fill in those holes on the landscape, and that created a lake. So when that lake was formed, it was probably, there was no muck in the bottom, it was a sandy soil, uh, but, as I mentioned before, it has a watershed, and as it rains, all the stuff inside of that area runs down into the lake. So over the hundreds and hundreds of years, leaf material, organic material from plants and trees and acorns and pollen granules and all these things roll down the hill and get into the lake. Uh, that's the development of what we term muck. That's uh, anthropogenic processes from the terrestrial area getting into, into the lake. But as the lake itself creates algae, aquatic plants, fish, turtles, as everything dies, it creates its own organic matter that sinks to the bottom. So you have two sources of organic matter, internal and external. And depending on the size of the watershed, it could be a really large watershed and a little body of water, the majority could come from the land. Some of the lakes have a really big lake, but a small watershed, so most of the stuff could be coming from internally. Uh, this is important for aquatic plant management because we can accelerate sometimes the internal production of organics when we get exotic plants in there, like water hyacinth, which is the number one problem in the state of Florida since the late 1800s. And now we have hydrilla and we have many other exotics that are producing organic matter, but they're also causing troubles with navigation, uh, fish populations, natural processes. So a lot of times through treatment, you know, these organics will fall to the bottom. It's all lake succession, tendency to fill the lake up. Like I mentioned before, we have natural processes that can uh, eliminate this with floods and droughts, but that allows for huge fluctuations in the lakes. In as my far as levels? Lake levels. I think one of the biggest issues for our causing difficulties with our lakes, one of our problems, the major problem is how we have stabilized our lakes. And we don't let them fluctuate anymore to clean themselves out. The big main you lakes. You got an example of that? Can you? Lake Tohopalaga, Istapoga, Kissimmee, Okeechobee. All of these used to fluctuate 10 to 15 uh, feet over the course of time. People like to live near it. They need it for agriculture. They needed it for transportation originally. So we started channelizing and draining these systems. And now they only fluctuate a little. So we've lost the cleaning mechanisms. And that's why Istapoga, uh, Kissimmee, Toho, FWC, uh, Game Commission many years ago, and we'll continue to have to consider uh, lowering the water level and getting in there with heavy equipment and dredging out accumulated sediments, both from terrestrial and internal production, because there's no longer the self-cleaning mechanism. And that has really impacted habitat for fish and wildlife, 
and the longevity of the lakes, how long lakes will last until eventually they fill in and become wetlands. Because every lake is trying to become a marsh. Every lake is trying to become a marsh. That's the end product. But the reason, since most of Florida lakes are really, really shallow, that the, the, we don't have thousands of marshes across there, is because we've had these extremes in drought and floods that actually flush these systems out, or they dry them up and a lot of that stuff blows away, or a lot of them burn during those time periods. You'll get big fires uh, that burn the peat and the muck. And before we came along, and if you dig down, you can see huge charcoal areas in the sediment history because you had huge wildfires that went across Florida a thousand years ago and burned the whole state up because of lightning and they had tree fires and stuff. It's so, super dry years. Super dry years. What did you tell me? How much does this topoga fluctuate now? About a foot and a half. Annually. Annually. And so they... What would it historically, do you know? Uh, probably eight to 10 feet. Okay. And when they do that, when it floods, it floods a two or three miles out, and a lot of the plant material will float up there with it. And you'll have uh, winds associated with these big storms that'll blow a lot of the sediments up onto the hill, and then the waters slowly recede, but the organics stay on the land, and so it actually cleans the lakes up. Even through like a turbidity situation? Like it stirs the lake up during the storm Correct. and then the flood? It because it picks up particles. You need energy to pick particles up. Okay. And once it's in the, in the water column, then if it floods out or is going downstream, it's carried. When it's real calm, all that stuff settles to the bottom. This addresses a, another issue where we actually sequester nutrients in the bottom of the lake and over the course of hundreds of years, that actually gets lost to the water column of the lake because it gets consolidated where it won't get resuspended anymore. There's always an active layer of about 10 to 15 centimeters that as wind comes, it comes up. But if you dig down, there's five or six feet of sediment and that gets sequestered and locked up where it no longer gets active within the lake system. Are those legacy nutrients as well as the ones? They are, but it depends on how you define legacy. Okay. If legacy means that you can actually reuse them again, that's in the active layer. Okay. The, the historical bound stuff that gets to the bottom finally and gets out of that active layer, then that's sequestered and it no longer shows up. So sequestration basically means we're going to hold these nutrients locked somewhere yep. to where they that's can't right. be taken up. That's right. And now we can, one of our big management things that's uh, many lakes in Florida have experienced it is we can actively bind things with aluminum sulfate, alum, and that's one of our management techniques to decrease the utilization of that active layer and tie all those nutrients up so the lake doesn't use it anymore. There's some really good examples. Uh, lake Holden in Orlando is a really good example. It was really, really green in the 80s when I did fisheries work on it. Uh, the people didn't like it. It had fish kills, lots of real green algae. Uh, a group went in there and uh, Harvey Harper's group has learned they're probably the best in, in the nation on utilizing this technology, uh, has really figured out how to do multiple applications that'll bind it up. And it's really fun to go to Google Earth and look at Lake Holden, and you can go back to 1994 before he got started, and you can actually see it clear up to now. You can actually see plants in 15 foot of water 
because of the binding capacity of that alum in the sediments. That's a really classic example of how we can use that technology. Let's talk then. You got me chasing a bunch of things now because you got my mind spinning. That is because limnology is a generalist <laughs> and you have many different fields that you can run down rabbit holes. <laughs> okay, we're going to run down some. <laughs> you talked about muck. Can you explain to me about muck creation from... I don't know how to ask this question well, but here's what's in my mind. When we spray hyacinth today, it creates muck. But doesn't hyacinth create muck anyway by sloughing off leaves? And is that, isn't it the same outcome? Or uh, Absolutely not. <clears throat> and you've hit on one of the main uh, approaches that the management agencies, it used to be uh, DNR. I'm old, so I know the history of everything. And then it used to be DEP, and then it finally went to FWC. In that social and economic aspects of the management of systems, you have to understand that philosophies from different agencies change. But what we're talking about is maintenance control of aquatic plants. If you allow plants to grow and don't touch them, all year long they're creating biomass. And that biomass is dying. It's just like leaf litter in your yard. And when the plant senesces and dies, all of this stuff falls to the bottom. In Florida, we really don't have huge freezes, so it just continues to grow year-round, creating organic matter. That's what it does. It takes sunlight, carbon, nutrients, and creates biomass that sinks to the bottom. So if you leave hyacinths unchecked, it's creating huge amounts of biomass that you don't see that's falling to the bottom. If we spray them one time, which we do, uh, knock them down, all that biomass goes to the bottom. A lot of it gets broken down, but you do create biomass. And then what we call maintenance control is to spray them on a regular basis to keep them at a very low level. That way they're not creating biomass and there's not that much biomass to begin with. So you try to keep those problem plants that can grow and cover an entire lake at the lowest feasible level. That way they're creating a whole lot less organic matter. But more importantly, if you allow plants to go to a huge amount, you may need 100 gallons of herbicide. If you keep them at a low level, you may need only a half a gallon a year. So you're not only stopping organic matter, but you're using less herbicide, less cost, more personnel cost. Uh, but once the, that plant is in the system too, it's impossible to get it out. It's like getting oil out of water. You cannot eradicate it. Some people think you can, but you can't. There's a seed bank and it's all over the state. Somebody's eventually gonna bring it in on a boat. It's a lot of people problem, but once it's there, we need to manage it and we need to take care of it. Okay, since we're, since we're on herbicides for a second, um, Legacy herbicides. That's okay. a thing. We've talked actually with your colleague, Dr. Farrell, about that before. Yep. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that? I know you were involved with the Istapoga study. Correct. I, a myth I hear, I'll, I won't say it's a myth. I'm not an expert. But something I hear a lot is a hurricane comes through and stirs up the bottom of this lake and it kills all the plants because it releases the diquad or the glyphosate or whatever that's bound up down there. But you guys did a study on this. We did. Uh, we actually published it. If anybody needs to get a hold of it, it's in the Istapoga Habitat Management Plan 
or they can get it in the Journal of Aquatic Plant Management. And I'll, I'll interrupt to say, I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes that'll go out with this podcast. So you can click on that link and just go straight there. Okay. Uh, as we went through the habitat management plan, it was a stakeholder-driven uh, plan where we got general public uh, multiple times to get issues. Then we had a smaller group of stakeholders that were representative of different user groups, uh, guides, real estate people, uh, fish camp owners. Uh, we had a smaller group. And in that smaller group, we had lots of discussions. And one of the main issues that came out was that the sediments were poison and that there's no way some of this stuff can grow back because if you're not familiar with this topoga, uh, they lost all their, uh, not all of it, but uh, the lion's share of their submerged aquatic plants uh, right after Irma, and it started before Irma. Uh, Vallisneria, eelgrass, and hydrilla were the two main ones. People were worried because the fishing reportedly had decreased. I'll say the duck hunting has decreased exponentially. I'll get into the duck hunting in a bit because <laughs> it has all over the whole state of Florida. Agreed. But uh, one of the main issues that came out of this uh, in the small group and the big group was that uh, legacy herbicides were causing the uh, problem with regrowth. So we took a two-phase approach. Uh, the small stakeholder group, I presented this, and they all agreed that this would be a good idea. We went out to nine different stations in areas where the stakeholders, the fishermen, uh, and people who live on the lake told us that Vallisneria and Hydrilla had been growing prior to the die-off of plants. So we knew plants had grown there. And we went and we uh, took sediments uh, from nine different stations. We brought it back to the University of Florida. We put those sediments into pots. And then we submerged those pots. And we made control soils with organic matter and sand. And we planted tomatoes. The reason we did tomatoes uh, was because they're very sensitive to all herbicides. Okay. So we're looking to see if indeed the controls grew or if the sediments grew out of Vistapoga. If there was legacy herbicides, the tomatoes should not grow. We also took sediments from Lake Tohopalaga, who had her, uh, hydrilla growing in it and native aquatic plants. So we took the sediments from areas where were growing plants, but they have also received the same amount of herbicides as Vistapoga over the last 20 years. So we had not only a control, we had tohu that has been herbicided, but that was currently growing plants, and we had istapoga that had been herbicided and no growing plants. So all the tomatoes grew and all the sediments, the controls, toho, and istapoga sediments. So we knew we could grow tomatoes. That wasn't good enough because the stakeholders said, but there still is things in there that aren't that that you can't you know, that the tomatoes can grow out. So we went out and took a whole other sample of nine. This is phase two. Phase two of all the stuff. And we actually sent it out and had analyzed for all the herbicides that had been used in Istapoga for the last uh, 10 years, including Diquat, uh, Aquathol, uh, Sonar, which is the fluoridone compound, glyphosate, all the rest of those. And we... Uh, found no residuals. They could not find any residuals in there because sunlight breaks it down and bacteria actually utilize herbicides as a source of nutrients and they, they actually break it down 
And so we could not find in any of the nine stations uh, any residual herbicides, including Diquat. So there was no legacy? No. So we did not find it. Uh, there has not, and that, that was a very good study because uh, it incorporated the stakeholders. They went out in the boats with us and showed us where to pick the sediments. They were part of the issue. And once we finished that, we moved on to other issues. So this is the way, uh, a really good way to work with stakeholders and scientists to answer questions that were brought up, uh, scientifically get the information, now let's move to something else. Right, let's put this issue to bed. Let's address it, get an answer, and then move on. That's correct, and that's why, and the other really, really important thing, and this is one of the things I work with graduate students all the time, is that uh, you have to publish your findings. You have to put it out in a peer-reviewed journal. Let other scientists look at your methods, but once it's out there now, somebody, if I get run over by a bus, it's not just me saying it. It's out there. It's been peer-reviewed. You can find it. Somebody else can recreate exactly what I did. And so when they come in here to do a thesis, writing a thesis is one thing because it gets to the university and they get checked off and get a nice little graduate degree. But unless they finalize it and publish it so that people down the road can use their science to build and increase the knowledge base, then I don't think it's complete. All right, I wanna talk, because you've, you've written and published Countless. I, I couldn't tell you how many because when I looked through the list, it was a lot of na- <laughs> publications with your with your name on them. But something I saw that kept coming up over and over again was anthrop- anthropogenic eutrophication. And I'm, I'm tangentially tying it to this question, which we talked about a little bit beforehand. But one of the things that's on the landscape when we talk lake management and lake management plans is we want to see an increase in harvesting. Everybody kind of talks about that. It's almost a magic bullet out there. And we've We've addressed that on some other podcasts. Is it a, a magic bullet or not? There's probably some, there's some downsides to it. There's some, there in, is no magic bullet across it, the board. Increased harvest of what? Uh, of, of aquatic plants. Okay. Increased hot, uh, like hydrilla harvesting or whatever. And You're we're talking not, mechanical harvest versus chemical harvest. Correct. Or, mechanical or harvesting. And the question we were talking about beforehand is, I don't understand this and I need somebody to explain it to me. If we harvest that and we put it on an island, like we go to Toho and Dr. Leary runs a study and he, he harvests all this material and puts it on an island. Are the nutrients ending up back in that lake? Because that part of the idea behind harvesting is we want to take the nutrients out of the lake. So it's a longer term solution than spraying and allowing them fall. And what's happening to those nutrients? Can you talk about that? I can talk about that. Uh, the nutrients, of course, nitrogen is a little different than phosphorus and I don't want to get into the real technical stuff, but, uh, you can actually lose nitrogen to the atmosphere with denitrification. Okay. Like almost an evaporation. Correct. And that's a whole process with bacteria and different changes. But the majority of Florida lakes, I'd say 90, 95% of the lakes are limited. We're talking limited nutrients by phosphorus. So we'll stay with phosphorus. Sure. It's neither created nor destroyed. And so when you harvest plants, unless you take them out of the lake, they stay in the lake. However, they can be bound tightly and get into that lower segment of the sequestered sediments that are not utilizable. Okay. The issue with the mechanical harvesting, everybody wants it because there is an innate fear of herbicides, even though they have been truly, truly tested. And I'll say that used according to label rates, they're very safe. 
and the people that are use, using them and managing them are doing a proper thing. It doesn't poison it, and you'll talk to Ruth later. This is not why sores are costs on fish and the rest of that, and I'm sure you'll get deep into that. But the mechanical harvesting, there's places that it can be very, very useful. But you have to understand that most aquatic plants, 90 plus 95 percent of the plant is water. Water is really, really heavy. So when you go in there on a thousand acre lake, that's not even a big one because Okeechobee, you know how big it is. It tohos 25,000, 25,000 uh, acres. If you're in the middle of the lake and you have to move 10 tons of water to get 5% of that, which is plant, out, you're using a lot of fuel. It's really damn near impossible to pay for that much. And you can only do so much in a day because it's heavy and a paddle boat can only go so fast a mile per hour. So you can do it. But it's just not economically feasible. There's no way. And then you would have to put it in a truck and take it outside of the watershed if you really want to get it out of it. Because we already mentioned Molecule X runs That's, where, I, that's where I'm really getting to is, is Molecule yeah. X, right? And it stays in. But I'm also an advocate of being able to utilize some of these sediments and put them on a field and grow corn and let it go back. But we just keep carrying it back up and reuse some of this stuff if possible. If not, uh, you know, sequester it down in there. But the water chemistry, I'll give you an example. Lake Tohopelaga, they uh, lowered it in 2000, made 29 almost acre islands. In lake. In lake, piled it in lake. And I was, I was to study uh, the lake system afterwards and see how nutrients bled off these islands. They piled what in lake? Uh, all the tussock material. From harvesting projects. It was actually bulldozers from the littoral zone okay. because we accumulated muck in the sediment. Okay, gotcha. And then piled all that up, all the different plants. They went down the sand bottom. And the water chemistry really didn't change that much because the amount of nutrients in the islands was a really small percentage of what comes down to Kissimmee or, or the, the watershed that's pouring in there. Right. You have... Uh, Two main creeks, you got East Toho drains in there. Uh, uh, it escapes me, the one that comes through Disney. Reedy. Reedy Creek comes in there. So you have all of this water. When you add the nutrients coming up, it wasn't as much as that was, was tied up into the sediments. Gotcha. So the plants you generally are not as much, especially in Okeechobee, as, what, as much comes down to Kissimmee River in the first place. So the goal of piling it up is to get it out of the way where it's causing trouble and to put it someplace where it can do its thing and you know bleed out. But it's not the main source of nutrients to the system. The main source is from the basic watershed and the other nutrients that are coming into the gotcha. system. Gotcha. So it's not as big a contributor. No. It's in the it's in the lake. It's not going anywhere else because X stays in the lake. It doesn't evaporate like nitrogen can. Right. Uh, so it stays there, but it's not as much as what's here. And so you've opened an area where you want cleaned from plants because of use and the decision that you didn't want plants there and piled it in an area where it's consolidated and out of the way. Okay. Thank you. That's the best answer. I've asked that question like 25 times and that's the best answer. I haven't asked it on the podcast, but that's a thank you. That clarified it big time for me. Okay. Um, 
I have a another kind of tangential question, and it's related to some other studies you did. And I didn't I didn't put this in our outline, but how big of a factor is when you talk about nutrient inflows? When you talked about anthropogenic eutrophication, yep. How big a factor is man in that? Lakes are individuals, and each individual lake uh, has their natural footprint, what they can and can't be based on geology and the watershed and the size of the lake and all that. And man comes in there, and what do we do? Okay, we dig up things, we build houses, we put concrete. So we change the way water gets to the system. We, all of us have a septic tank or a central sewage system. Uh, septic tanks, if they're not done properly, okay, they leak, they can get into the system. If done properly, they do very well. Uh, another manuscript I just finished with the, probably the last graduate student I'll run, uh, Chao Zhang. The benefit of Lake Watch is being able to have long-term data, and we had long-term data on 87 lakes. Uh, the next generation of limnology is blessed with overflow of data. The water management districts flies individual, their whole area, once every five years. They digitize the land use. So we were able to look at 20 years of land use changes in relation to the water chemistry that we've got, blessings to our volunteers who collect it. So I was actually able to go in there and look at urban development in individual watersheds to see how that impacted the, the water. Because again, my whole career has been based on figuring out what, what is natural and what has changed based on things we do. I broke it into four main watershed characteristic agriculture urban development forest and wetland okay so we knew how that changed in the watersheds of 87 lakes i had some surprises when we looked at it the first one that wasn't really a surprise is that uh, lake chemistry in watersheds dominated by agriculture or where agriculture was increasing showed a higher nutrient concentration. Okay. So agriculture, probably because of fertilization, and when they till soils, if you have a big rain, that X molecule runs downhill easier. There's nothing it, holding it. There's nothing holding it. So we saw a positive signature of agriculture. Now, all of IFIS is working diligently on agricultural practices to decrease that impact of nutrients coming down and we're doing a really good job if it's done well and you have berms and you know you fertilize properly they're just not throwing it out there they don't want to waste the money they don't want to waste the money but there's there's different technologies we're using that, that can do that one of the most surprising things though that i found in that study was lakes with high levels of urban development were having lower nutrient signatures really and that really surprised me. But when you get in there, the more urban development you have, you're taking septic tanks off and you're going to central sewer. People don't want their houses flooded, so they're doing better about stormwater technology. We're putting baffle boxes on there to capture leaf material and stuff that used to get into the lake. So we actually, over the last 20 years, in areas like Lake Holden, that have really good developed stormwater. They do it well. The technologies are coming up. We're actually showing an improvement in technology. 
Now, one of the things that's controversial in the findings, too, is that wetlands are supposed to be this big kidney. Everybody calls them the kidney. But like I mentioned with the hyacinth, the plants are continually growing and producing material that dies and dissolves. So areas that were actually having increase in wetlands or large wetland imprint had higher nutrient concentrations. So they were actually acting as a source because once they reach their max, they're bleeding nutrients out. And again, unless you harvest those plants and take them out of the watershed, uh, those lakes showed a high imprint of nutrients. Forest systems, which are all agriculture pretty much in Florida, were actually showing low nutrient signatures. So those pine plantations are sequestering, they're slowing nutrients down, they're allowing it to percolate into the water column, and those managed forest systems were actually acting uh, more of a nutrient trap than the wetlands were. Wow, I would have never thought that. I wouldn't have either. So again, uh, is there a is there a almost like a lake life cycle? Is there a life cycle to a wetland wherein it becomes ineffective is. at some? You point? accumulate sediments into a point that it's you know it's that lake succession, and we're getting to a point, and then if you have a storm, all that stuff blows out because what happens? That big thing is in an area that accumulates water, and it blows that stuff in. So not even a big storm, you get a afternoon six inch rain which is very common in florida we've had a couple here just recently right uh every time that happens it bleeds through there and blows all the dead stuff into the system you know so it it accumulates stuff but again unless you're harvesting out of those wetlands and again when we've stabilized our water level we do not get the the ability to float all that stuff up on a hill leave it or allow it to go really low and it dries out and clean some of these systems Wow, that's fascinating. I'm going to come back to you with like 12 more questions at some point in the future. Zhao <laughs> Zhang and uh, Mark Hoyer, that's another publication that's available. Okay. Uh, it's in Lake and Reservoir Management. I probably need to turn it into a little extension publication, but uh, it was very interesting finding, and I, I lost the train of thought for a second, but the next generation of people, uh, scientists, aquatic ecologists, limnologists, we have these long-term databases now with digital aerial photographs where we can actually, we've just got a brand new professor into our department now, Anna Boswell. She has access to the whole United States Zillow database. So the last 40 years of land development she has access to that we're going to be able to overlap with our Lake Watch data. And we're really going to be able to look at the whole state of Florida where changes are occurring and it's really exciting for these young people now that have better computer skills than myself <laughs> so before we get to lake watch i've got one more thing and you alluded to this earlier but i'm going to ask it and let you just pontificate probably not the right word but i'm gonna let you pontificate on it lake health you don't like that term can you explain why uh lake health depending on your viewpoint uh means different things to different people if you're a fisherman, you really don't mind a greener water because you know you're producing more fish than the clear water. If you're a swimmer, you don't want to swim in a lot of the really green lakes. But if you're an angler and you go to the Ocala Forest, unless you're fishing for that one big fish that lives in Ocala, you're not going to have a big uh, daily catch rate because of the low productivity. This is one of the catch-22s and even the Clean Water Act. 
because it states that we want to manage waters for swimmable and fishable. Those are not... Those are not... You can't have the same thing in an individual lake because a really clean lake isn't very productive. And a really productive lake isn't really a clean lake. Interesting. So when you say health, I look at natural, what can the lake be? And we look at geology and watershed and we find out what that lake can be. And if we've changed it from what it is, then it's not natural and do we want to bring it back or do we change it that way because that's how we wanted it as a society. Gotcha. So lake use is is how you define whether a lake is is good or bad. If you're an angler and you want lots of fish, and even with anglers, do you want lots of 12-inch fish because you have a good day or do you want one really big fish or do you want bass or do you want to catch 50 crappie in a day. All of those are individuals because each individual species has a different life history. Gotcha. And the lake is really good for the life history of an individual species. Most of the lakes have all of them in there, but if you fill a water column full of aquatic plants, you switch from open water species to plant-oriented species. You don't lose all the species in the lake. But for example, all your shads will decrease when you get a lot of hydrilla in the lake. But if you treat all of that, then the shad come back. Uh, aquatic birds are the same. If you fill a water column full of plants, you'll get ducks. They actually eat the plants. But you'll lose your anhingas and cormorants. That are wanting the fish. Because they can't swim. That's how their mechanism is. But if you open that up, then they can live. But your ducks go someplace else because they like the plants. So individual species are geared towards what that lake is, and they can move. Fish can't, but the birds, they hop around to find what they want. Right. And back to your duck thing quickly, because of warming situations, those ducks are stopping in North Carolina. This is one of the things I kept having a hard time in Istapoga, because the duck hunter says, well, they're not here, and it's because of spraying. No, I hunt Orange Lake, and I haven't killed ducks on Orange Lake in the last four years. Because they're not coming down here. Orange Lake has looked beautiful over the last four years. The habitat is great. It's beautiful. It's got hydrilla. You know, all the native plants are out there. It's just, I should be killing ducks. But it's not because of spraying. It's because the ducks have changed their flight patterns. So we've, we've, I I don't want to talk about ducks anymore. It just makes me sad. (laughs) I just bought my duck stamp and it was killed me to spend the money <laughs> we um we have tiptoed around lake watch quite a bit so okay. i want to i want to dive into lake watch because it's it's your thing like yeah. that's whenever i mention your name someone's like oh lake watch <laughs> what is lake watch okay in the early years i already mentioned there was a lot of different agencies in 1986 lake watch started it started from one lake lake santa fe just down the road uh, they were trying to get information on how to be good stewards of their lake. There was a homeowners association group and they wanted to know about it. Uh, they called DNR at the time. DNR sent them to the water management district. The water management district sent them to Game and Fish. Game and Fish sent them to uh, DEP. And then DEP sent them back to DNR. And they weren't getting any answers because there weren't, wasn't anybody to really help them individually manage the system. So they came to the University of Florida, found Dr. Canfield. He was a newly hired limnologist. Well, not newly, because we did a whole lot of research up to that part on fish, and that's a whole other history of 
uh, aquatic plant management and fish populations and bird populations that we published on. But the Santa Fe homeowners came up and Dan looked at them and said, listen, we don't have biologists. You know, I was his biologist. We were working on how many plants to have in lakes and herbicides and all this stuff. But here's some bottles. You go out, you sample for a year, bring it back. We'll analyze them in our laboratory, and then we'll sit down and talk to you and tell you what about your lake. They were thrilled. Uh, if you ever work with volunteers, uh, you, you know, volunteer organizations lose interest pretty easy. So we thought, well, yeah, if they do it, they do it fine. Well, lo and behold, they didn't miss a month. Uh, brought it back. We talked to them. They loved it. They ate it up. We told them about trophic state and where their lakes at and everything. Uh, and they said, can we keep sampling? Absolutely. And all of a sudden, Lake Broward down the road said, we want some of that action. Because people talk about, you know, and they were really thrilled. Elto, Lake Elto down the road, they said, hey, Browning, we want some of that action. Dan and I sat down and said, holy smokes, what's the deal here? And then we said, you know, one of our goals was to define natural background variants that I talked about. In order to do that, we had to have thousands of lakes across the state because the geology is really different across the state. We said, this is good. We get free labor. <laughs> we can start covering the lake. So we actually started the program with a research mind. We weren't thinking about stewardship or anything. We were greedy. So we wanted data. We wanted data. They wanted our expertise. So we started giving them and then more lakes and more lakes, word of mouth. Before you know it, we were doing 40, 50 lakes. Well, that's money. And Dan and I have been very successful researchers, as you, you've seen. So we were getting a lot of grants. So we had overhead dollars and we could fund this. But we were running out of money to do it. And we wanted to cover more of the state. Uh, legislators got involved because they all of a sudden said, man, we're reaching to people. We're telling people about lakes. They're going to make informed decisions. So Senator George Kirkpatrick and Bert Harris at the time out of Highlands County uh, ran a bill in. In 1993, we became the state's volunteer monitoring program. And with that came steady funding. Then we, we shot up logarithmically and got up to six or 700 lakes. Uh, and then in 2000, I wanted to take it out to the estuaries and do coastal under the Lake Watch. We got uh, 400,000 to do that. I set up stations all around the state of Florida while we were doing freshwater. We were also doing the estuaries. Uh, a new governor came in in 2001 and slashed that funding. So we opened up coast. Uh, we continue a lot of those in the Keys, Choctahatchee Bay, St. Andrews Bay, St. Joe, Crystal River. So we still have a pretty big coastal footprint, but they don't get the services that our lakes and right. rivers do. Uh, I'm going to back up one time, too. And uh, the thing that surprised Dan and me is these people have sampled. In fact, the Santa Fe people have sampled now for 30 years and only missed five months in 30 years. Holy cow. This is the dedication. Uh, and that's the database I'm talking about that is better than anything in the world. And the one reason why, well, we, we give them a good product and we educate them and keep them engaged. But you tell me for yourself, what's the name of the most important lake in the state of Florida? I can't name that on the air because people will know where I duck hunt. But yeah, I, I'll, I'll say Toho or I'll say Istapoga or I'll say Kissimmee or Walk that, in the Water. That's the right? wrong answer. The right answer is my lake. There you go. Yeah. And so they're interested in being good stewards. These people want the information. One of the mistakes we made, because, of course, we didn't design this, 
Well, let me back up to the story. So we're, we're, we're with Research Bent. We, we got all the data. Uh, we addressed these things in many publications, the geology. Got most of the research stuff started that we really wanted out of the volunteers. But the other question, we wanted the geology. The other main question we had was, what happens to lakes over time? I mentioned to you Chow's paper uh, and mine on the watershed stuff. That was the other goal. In order to do that, you need long-term data. So how do you keep these people engaged? We keep them engaged by publishing their data, letting them know that they're contributing to the management and science. And we created extension publications to answer the questions that they had. In fact, I mentioned to you these information circulars that are on our website. They address individual questions that our volunteers had. And when we give them back the information they want, it, it, it engages them more, it motivates them to keep sampling. So they keep sampling in order to stay engaged with us and learn more about their systems. And those circulars are uh, available to anybody that wants them. They're on our website and they can download them. They're PDFs and it's, uh, I'm looking at one, muck, causes and corrective actions. Correct. Like uh, we had lots of questions about muck recently. So we went ahead and uh, got all the information we could from all the scientists put together uh, circular to answer the questions about where it comes from, what is it, how do you get rid of it? And we do the same for fish kills, uh, bacteria in the systems, a lot of other things. But when we were started, I got to back up one more time. Uh, we started getting hundreds and hundreds of lakes, and I was one person, and we had one other chemist and a few technicians. We couldn't keep up. So the other way to take care of the situation is to get indentured servants, I mean graduate students, <laughs> involved to answer an individual questions. And then they helped our workforce, and they were cheap, but they got a degree all under lake management and lake watch. So Dan and I are, you know, people laud us for this great big program that we developed and how we were really smart to do all this. We did not know what we were doing. We started research. We needed extension to keep them involved. We needed students to help us with the workforce. So lo and behold, it was teaching research and extension, which is the university's mission, land grant mission. Had we started that to begin with, we'd have been better off. But uh, uh, we eventually got to where we are, and we've created a really good mousetrap now. And uh, like I said, the volunteers sample monthly, and we've got a great database. I'm hoping to find somebody that loves it as much as I do when I step out of here to keep it going. Because the more long-term data get we get in with Zillow databases, with aerial photography, with water level changes, we can finally get the science like we did for the legacy herbicides to really answer questions scientifically and uh, use that information to make management decisions, how best to spend our political dollars. And it, it all starts with the people that are willing to share because they love their resource. But you're, you're taking a super informed position going into those decision-making processes, right? Correct. Like that gives you all the data for writing like we've talked with FWC about lake management plans and they're doing a whole program around the state on lake management plans or system management plans. And it's kind of a buzzword. You've been involved on the Estepoga one. And I don't know if you were involved on the Orange Lake one, but it, that data can be a huge driver to that inform. Can inform. In fact, the Orange Lake one, uh, they did a good job. They brought people in like myself to give presentations on uh, water chemistry. What does it mean? How does it work? Uh, 
Dan and myself have done multiple lake management plans ourselves for Salapopka Chain of Lakes, Coastal Dune Lakes. Uh, you know, the whole Toho project was a uh, mini management plan based on what's going to happen when we draw this down, what's going to happen to the water chemistry. We had a lot of stakeholders involved. Uh, but every year that we get more data and educate more people on the lakes through our Lake Watch program, uh, the better we are when we come down to trying to manage these lakes, not in a healthy way, but in a natural way <laughs> that, and even within that natural way, we can manipulate things back and forth to how we want to use that system. Uh, how many plants do we want? What species of plants? Can we get it there with the tools that we have? And people like James Leary, uh, Jay Farrell, all these guys, we're revisiting new technologies. Science is awesome. So, uh, Dr. Farrell said when we did the interview with him, and I'm, I'm sure you, you guys all say it, science has never settled. No. We move forward, and the, the more tools. I'm so excited about the uh, drone technology where we can go up and identify individual species of plants. One of the things that's been lacking, uh, I, I'm not going to throw a, you know, we didn't have the technology at the time when we started managing plants to really, you know, videotape and see exactly the individual area we treated and what was happening to it. We just didn't. We didn't have the manpower. We were up to our ass in alligators and we're, hydrilla was rampant. Hyacinths were, we needed to get rid of it and we needed a general idea what was going to happen when it, when it got away. So, you know, a lot of people point at things and, you know, you did this wrong, that wrong. Uh, we're at a point now where I hope people, Istapoga folks, we have the technology to do this stuff. FWC is doing a great job trying to incorporate that stuff. It's a really tough task because when you get into the room with 300 people, uh, I had three or four <laughs> groups of 10 people would come up and say, this is how, I know what you know, and this is what we want, and then this is what we want. You know, you, you can't get everybody on board but we can give them the science and let them know what the options and the risks are and somebody eventually needs to make the decision and then we have to go uh, not so much well it's not a majority thing it's what's best for the natural system and and how we're going to utilize the lake and trusting the state to manage our public trust of that resource to the best of their ability, right? They they can inform stakeholders. That's part of public trust, but but they they are the have the expertise, so they're taking our engagement. But then we've got to use science to discharge the policy and figure out how we're going to manage that. And right. people have to understand. I, I went into a small little section on individual species having different different life histories. FWC manages systems for fish and wildlife, and for the benefit of people. So you may want to get rid of every single fish except largemouth bass. But we have to look for the black-banded sunfish. Uh, you know, we have to, in the public trust, we have to take care of all the species, not just the ones that people want because they like to catch them or whatever. We need to consider all the herps and turtles and alligators. Wady birds and, and the whole nine yards. And all the rest of that. How many lakes are you managing? I think you said it, but how many are you managing under Lake Watch today? <laughs> or, or, I don't it's know. It's a fluctuating right. thing, but we're usually around six or seven hundred lakes. Good gracious! Couple hundred lakes and maybe two hundred coastal uh, sites. Okay, there may be ten sites within one estuary. Okay, because different little fingers. Uh, 
we don't really target areas. If somebody's really interested and I have the money, that's another person we can educate. Uh, the volunteers, before we let them in, we kind of get them to sign a memorandum of agreement. It's not binding, but we have to invest a lot of money in a kit. And so we want them to sample monthly for two years at a minimum. Uh, again, they're interested in their system. And as long as we have the resources, uh, we've been blessed again. Uh, this year, there was many budget cuts and we get a line item from the legislature. But I think they realize we're in 57 Florida counties. And with uh, Governor DeSantis's uh, importance on water chemistry, uh, and we're getting all this stuff. I'll give you another G whiz number. If you just take the sampling trips that our volunteers do, uh, some of them only do quarterly. I've added all those up. And each one is about two and a half hours because they have to take their sample. They have to process them, put them in a the freezer. And then they take that to a location that they drop off where we send runners out to pick them up. If you just look at the man hours, uh, they donate over $500,000 of man hours uh, to the state of Florida just in the the, just their time in collecting samples in collecting samples, not their gas, their, you know, uh, equipment that they use or any of that. And then each sample that they bring costs me about six or $7 to process. If you process that at a consulting firm, it's usually 80 or $90. Wow. So if the you, value is the cost benefit for this program is on the tune of 30 to one, 40 to one, something like that. And, and we're talking millions and millions of dollars. Yes. Not to mention the educational aspect that they have and the ability to be out there and see if there's a fish kill to take a sample that day instead of waiting till the phone call goes to somebody so that we have on site, eyes on site, that people call me when something happens and I can get out there and, and, and know they take pictures and uh, just a great resource and those people are wonderful. So could people still volunteer for Lake Watch? They can right now, of course, with COVID, uh, we can't go out and train people. We've got a waiting list and I have uh, just an X, you know, we have a budget. We can cover just about the number that I had, but every year we lose 30 or 40 systems. We either add, we try to maintain continuity because of the long-term aspect where we can really look at changes over time. Right, it gives you a better sample. Right, we don't want to leave, uh, we don't want to stop the continuity of Lake Alto because if something changes, we can look at it, climate and, and all the rest of that stuff. But sometimes you can't find a volunteer there and somebody will retire, <laughs> you know, I hate to say it, but one of the main reasons we lose volunteers is they pass away. Right. And they just, you know, we, we have an older workforce. They're dedicated as heck. And we've done three different comparison studies. This is another thing I wanted to get out there. Uh, DEP, uh, water management districts, they're always afraid uh, or, or they concerned that volunteers can't collect good data. So three different times. I just sent one in. I did it again on 600 different annual means where we compare them to agency collected data. And every time I do it, it's a one-to-one -one relation. 100%. Right across the board. If a volunteer collects and does our samples and water management with NELAC certified does theirs, and I've got three publications we can show people, and that's why DEP likes to use our data. We have a great working relationship. They've finally sent me a database 
of lakes that they want to sample, but they don't have the manpower. So I'm trying to fill in the gaps for them. So we're working hand in hand with our state agencies now, and it's just a wonderful thing. It's truly, I don't know of another citizen science project that's more successful than this. Like when you think about the scope of it, the magnitude of it, and the and the duration of it. I'm kind of prejudiced, but I think it's one of the best in the world. And, <laughs> and we're right now too, I've worked with two different world organizations that are utilizing our data. One from Denmark, uh, where we did climate change uh, manuscripts looking at the Denmark lakes compared to Florida lakes because the current and they're predicting changes in the next 30 years and uh, we're being able, we're utilizing our lakes to see what's going to happen in Denmark down the road with climate change. And it's wonderful to work with these world-renowned scientists to come over. They work with us for three or four months because they realize our data is one of the best that there is. Another group, uh, aquatic plants, looking at uh, global changes in species composition. Uh, and I'm one of 23 different countries that are providing data to look at this at altitude, temperature, and different things, and why individual species live in the places that they work. I'm fascinated by the data driving mechanism that you've compiled, yep. because the, the sheer volume of rows and columns has just got to be overwhelming, like <laughs> uncountable. <laughs> If people still, they're like, okay, I know it's COVID time. I know I'd have to be on a wait list. They can still go to the Lake Watch website. They can go to the Lake, Lake Watch website. And how I function is we have three regional coordinators. Each co coordinator is in charge of X number of counties. We try to divide it up equally. And that regional coordinator has a list. And so if you have a lake that uh, you really want to get into the system, uh, you know, there's a little application on the website, put it in there. If we can get to you, we will, and eventually we will. It may be a while. Uh, there's budgetary, budgetary constraints. Uh, but there's also, as a director, I have little pet things. If you're a high school teacher and you got a bunch of young kids, you know, and we can get you in there, and every year you do a different class, there's things that I will set as a priority. As you can see on my wall, I coached and coached for years and years. Uh, yeah, looking at the pictures of Little League teams. And oh, yeah. And uh, it's really funny, but that's uh, next generation is the place that we need to put all this effort. And uh, the Lake Watch program has raised a lot of kids. We've had a lot of the young kids from our volunteers come and get our data, use it for science projects. They go on down the program and then they circle back and they're our graduate students. Wow. That's a powerful, powerful legacy, right? It is unbelievable. I mean, it gives me chills to think about that. <laughs> yep, yep. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule and, and sitting down with us. And also, thank you for this. Like like you said, you kind of stumbled into it, but man, what a great project and legacy that is on our landscape now that hopefully the state can continue to just fund and keep, keep current as we move forward. Yep, and we have a great staff. The people I work with here are just wonderful. And we're a big family, and uh, hopefully when I finally step down, I'll become a volunteer. And, and uh, there you go. I, I'm not going to tell you what lake because <laughs> <laughs> same as you, right? That's my fishing lake. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for season two of Cast and Blast Conversations. We really hope you guys have enjoyed these as much as we've enjoyed putting them together. Uh, as always, thank you to all of our guests, from Mark Hoyer for this week, but. 
across the board, we, we've just had a fantastic uh, year and it's been incredible. The, 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 some of the folks we've been able to talk to and I've just been blown away by the response from you guys, the listeners. So I just wanted to say thank you to all of you for all the likes, shares, comments, the patron joins, the, the uh, reviews you've left. Man, thank you across the board for supporting us the way you have. We'll keep the Tuesday show going and we may even have some interviews in on the Tuesday shows as we get through the rest of the year. But this will probably be the last conversation, as I mentioned earlier. So hope you guys have enjoyed it. I may surprise you, but don't hold your breath. Y'all have a great week and enjoy the tunes of Citrus by Trail Diver as it takes you into your weekend.